0: What do you know about Episcopon, the infamous cult at Trinity College? I didn't know much until I read a series of articles by first time varsity journalists Josh Chong and Hannah Sharifi. I sat down with the two of them to discuss Episcopon and its historical connection with Trinity College, as well as break down the nuances of investigative journalism.
1: So basically, it's a quasi secret society. Um that originally was part of Trinity College. And in the early 1990s, it was disassociated with Trinity College, basically kicked out because of some uh, incidents that occurred in the late uh, 80s and into the 90s. But it continued to be popular um, until really recently and continued to practice the same activities Hazing style activities, lots of discrimination. It's um, readings, thrice yearly readings, where basically Episcopal members would um, craft basically these jokes targeting other members of the college.
2: Episcopal has been disassociated from Trinity College. So, and there is still a form that students need to sign saying that they will not, you know, associate themselves with it. And Episcopal events are not supposed to happen in conjunction or in connection with any. Trinity College events or on Trinity College property. So I think because of this, they've sort of taken a step back and they're they don't really want to associate with any Trinity College issues or problems because you know they're dissociated technically. Um, but it is still, as we've said, very tied to the culture. So this kind of unwillingness to recognize the problem um, allows it to continue to be a prominent part of Trinity College.
0: There was a problem. Some of Trinity College's student leaders were also part of Episcopon. How did the disassociated cult affect the Trinity College community? There was a conflict of interest, one that Josh and Hannah wanted to explore.
2: Many members of Episcopon are active members of student government and heads of other clubs. Um, this includes like the Trinity College meeting and also other um, high positions like this. The interesting thing about Episcopon is that it has kind of embedded itself into the student culture at Trinity College. So Trinity College has a group of prominent social students who are kind of in the know and who occupy most of the leadership positions and higher positions in clubs. Um, and this group is known as Social Trin. And many first-year students will join Episcopon in order to get closer to this group, um, because they believe that it'll make them more popular and it'll help them gain positions. Um, so, this is kind of how people have been deceived by Episcopon and how Episcopon has lured students into its group.
1: Absolutely, yes. There's a lot of overlap between the spheres of Episcopon members and those in Trinity's student leadership. Even though Trini- uh, Episcopon has been disassociated formally with the college for over two decades. And what we heard from so many students that we interviewed, particularly the victims and who were discriminated against by Episcopal members, they felt, a lot of them felt really uncomfortable approaching these student heads because they knew that these student heads and leaders were part of Episcopal. And when we talked to some former members of Episcopal who were heads, they said it was a kind of a tough position for them and an awkward position because. While they were supposed to serve the students of Trinity College, they also needed to sometimes go behind their backs to craft these jokes for the Pescapone readings.
2: Uh, Just to add on to that, another area in which this becomes problematic is with frosh leaders and orientation leaders, because this is kind of how they will first infiltrate into first year's minds and how they will, you know, lure students in. Um, many first years come not knowing anything about Episcopal, but if their first interaction with Trinity members and orientation leaders introduces the idea into their minds, this can become really dangerous, and there's a lot of pressure for them then to join.
0: The journalistic process is long and complicated. From finding sources to ensuring that sources are credible, there is so much work that goes into accurately and effectively telling the story. What did the college have to say? Was there there pushback? Did you find it difficult to have the conversations that you wanted to have? Or were you amazed by their complacency?
1: Well, we weren't expecting much from them. Of course, whenever you write an investigative story like that, whenever you reach out to the people in power, be that like the admin or the heads, you don't expect much back. And that's, of course, what we got, mainly just some statements and all that, we didn't get anything new, which was expected, yeah.
2: So, essentially, the the process really began with our um, looking into older articles and older, um, I guess, archives and documentations of Episcopal in the past. So, that's kind of how we began to get a better understanding of Episcopal and to see what had been said about the club in the past, because it has been written about quite a few times. And from there, we wanted to, we first decided to um, set what our angle would be, because we didn't want to rewrite something that had already been written. We wanted to take a new angle and use this new leverage that had been provided by students coming out in these Facebook posts. That was our first, I guess, spark of inf- inspiration. We wanted to um, look at how people were getting really upset and people were naming names and coming out and explaining what had happened to them and what Episcopon had done to them. And from there, we began gathering names and we launched right into interviews. So that was our main, I guess, main investigative process. We conducted many interviews with alumni, with former Episcopon members, with students who'd been targeted. And um, that really provided the bulk of our article.
1: There's a lot of prep before going into the interviews. You don't kind of just go into an interview with just some questions in your head, kind of. So before every single interview, Hannah and I would meet and speak for 15 to 20 minutes because um, each interviewee is different. You can't use the same set of questions. You can't go into the, each interview the same way and use a cookie-cutter approach. And I think what was really helpful was help having both of us two people. I'm not sure how we would have been able to get through some of the interviews with just one person. So we had kind of at a system. We would kind of rotate. One person would be asking the questions, formulating the questions, and really keeping eye contact, um, especially in Zoom and over the internet. It's really important to have that connection at all times. Then we'd have the other person kind of um, taking notes um, on, on a Google Doc sheet, kind of like that. So we found that having one person really present at all times really helped facilitate the interview.
2: It was really thanks to the people that we interviewed for being so open and honest with us. Um, A lot of the experiences that they described, for example, the hazing process and some of the comments that were made must have been really difficult to talk about. Um, And Josh and I always prefaced our interviews by saying that, you know, we want to make this a comfortable space for you. So if there's anything that you want off the record, or if there's anything that you don't want your name attributed to, like we have to respect that. Um, so it was first thanks to the people we interviewed for being really open. Um, and it was definitely difficult to hear some of the things that we heard, especially coming into this, not knowing very much about you know, Trinity College or Episcopal at all. But what Josh and I really wanted to do was to put the focus on the people who had these lived experiences because we're speaking as outsiders and we wanted to really make the focus of the article the people who were really involved and who were really targeted and we wanted their emotions and their feelings to shine through.
0: What else surprised you about this, this process and what did you learn about yourselves as, as reporters about the journalism process more broadly?
1: I learned that something like this was possible. Going into this back in June, I thought it was a crazy idea. And I thought, no way we could do this. It's just too big for us to do. Um, And then when I asked Hannah if she wanted to work on it with me, I really didn't expect she was going to say yes. I just thought perhaps she could just... Be the sane person and just say, nope, Josh, this is not going to work. Something like that. But she said yes. And then we dived into it. And for a few weeks, in fact, until August, we had no idea how we were going to, like, wrap it up because it was just unraveling all these new stories. And after we interviewed a few people, they would give us more names and our interview list just grew longer and longer. Um... But then in September, once we actually started writing it and were close to finishing, then we could see the finish line. And that was a huge relief. And it kind of proved that we could do something like this and that it is possible for student journalists to tackle these large stories.
2: But I also wanted to add that as we were interviewing people, I think what I learned the most is the power of storytelling and the power of people sharing their stories and their experiences. Um, Because prior to interviewing anyone, you know, Josh and I had been reading posts and reading articles. And it's just so different um, learning about something from an article and learning about it through the voices of other people.
0: So let's chat a little bit about the process of of corroborating all these interviews. And and what did that look like, especially as first time journalists at, at the varsity? Was it way more of an undertaking than you could have possibly imagined.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, it, we've worked together in high school and we've done a few investigative stories together, Hannah and I, but never of this magnitude. And definitely the corroboration aspect um, for the varsity and the source sheet that we had to fill out. Our source sheet was over 90 pages, I believe, um, That was the most difficult part of the entire process, I believe, was corroborating everything because you would have these... um, We interviewed so many people and they would tell us their stories and all that and all the facts we needed to corroborate it. So that meant sometimes going back to our interviewees, um, interviewing them two or three times, honing in on specific details so that we just could get the corroboration And once we got that corroboration, then we could put it in the article. So that was, I believe, the most difficult part and the biggest change for me from high school journalism.
0: Was that hard to not include things that you believed to be true but couldn't find that concrete proof of?
2: Yeah, that was definitely difficult. Um, Often these were pieces of information that would have really supported our argument or were new pieces of information that hadn't been written about before. But I think that it definitely, with an article of this nature, it's definitely better to be on the safe side and it's definitely better to only publish things that we were 100% sure were true and that could be backed up by many different sources.
1: Yeah, it was really hard for me personally trying to separate and untangle the emotion of it and, and kind of the objectiveness of being a a reporter looking into this? Because some of the stories were just so heart-wrenching. It was so difficult to hear. And in order to just continue pushing through and still digging deeper, that was really difficult.
2: I think, for me, it definitely did change the way I saw things. Um, I never imagined that something like Episcopal existed. Um, I'm not a part of Trinity College myself. I'm a part of Victoria College. But it definitely shows you that... As a, I guess, as a student, there are a lot of things that you overlook and there are a lot of struggles that you don't see necessarily if you're not, you know, in a certain circle or if you're not in a certain club. And it, yeah, it made me more aware of the struggles that some people face every single day, not just through Episcopal, but just in their daily interactions. Like the first um, anecdote that we start the article off with, you know, these are things that often I myself am blind to, um, but now I'm definitely more aware of them.
0: Do you feel as though you were able to scrape and find all that Episcopal had done? Or based on your research, do you feel as though there were things that still lurking in the shadows that you were unable to quite pin down?
1: Oh, there's a lot more. A story is never finished. It's kind of just published when you kind of feel like there's a story to tell and it needs to be published, but there's a lot more. We just kind of just scratched the surface. Um, I'll give you an example. From the beginning, we were, we heard a lot that Episcopan, especially the male branch of Episcopan, had a really um, tight alumni network, and um, some of the alumni were pretty involved with it. And in fact, a few former Episcopan members said that Episcopan alumni would actually donate. Um, so we wanted to really look a bit deeper into that, but we just did not have the time. And um, that would take a lot more resources, a lot more interviews to corroborate something like that.
2: Although we did hear from a lot of people who were a part of Episcopal um, alumni, particularly, it is difficult to know exactly what occurs during Episcopal events if you're not if you haven't actually attended them yourself. And we'd actually heard differing stories from different people based on what year they'd been a part of it or whether they were part of the male branch or the female branch. And it is like an organization that I think is constantly changing and is constantly changing the um, the traditions that they uphold and the way in which they run their events. Um, so a lot of that we had to you know, rely on um, the people we interviewed but it's difficult, really, to know exactly exactly what's happening.
0: Behind every great story is an editor. We sat down with Stephanie Bai, the Features Editor at The Varsity. She offered more insight into the journalistic process and particular challenges that this piece presented.
3: I think the biggest role I had was basically just giving guidance to first-time varsity writers because they worked as an investigative team in high school. So they had experienced journalism and they had experience with journalistic writing, but it was their first time ever writing for the varsity. So we would frequently call just to go over the interview process, sourcing, and everything that needs to be put in place before the actual article can come out.
0: Was it Difficult, more difficult or a a different challenge than some of the other articles that you edited? And if so, what were those challenges?
3: I think this is probably the most challenging series of articles I've ever edited at the Varsity, mainly because it was a three-parter, like 7,000 words, a four-month process, and I've never invested so much time into a particular piece or series before. I would say the biggest challenge that I came across was just finding a way to communicate all of the information they had effectively because it was just a massive process of taking all of the information they accumulated which was hours and hours worth of interviews and then centralizing into one solid narrative that an audience can follow with
0: right so so walk me through that process a little bit when you're staring at this massive pile of interviews um, and sources how as, a, as an editor are you looking to tackle it and what what is that sort of how's that sort of go about for yourself
3: So the main process when it comes to taking all the interviews and creating a narrative out of it, that was up to Josh and Hannah. What I did mainly was work with them through the editing process with the multiple drafts they gave me. So they would technically already have the information assembled, and then I would work through them with hour-long calls, just going through every single line of that draft and telling them, here's what I think we should change. Here's where the tone kind of falls flat. Here's where a new source might need to be swapped in. I knew this piece was going to be big in terms of its impact on the U of T community. I knew it would affect a, a significant subset of this university. And I wanted to make sure we got it right. So for me, what draws me, I guess, to these pieces, these investigative pieces as a journalist is the ability to start that conversation. Because after this piece came out, I had a bunch of different people that I've worked with in the past, previous editors who emailed me or messaged me over Facebook and they said, "Hey." At this random club event I was at, I heard them talking about this piece. That's awesome, you know? It's awesome to hear that this information that you've worked on with two writers over Facebook messenger calls has all of a sudden diffused all across this massive decentralized campus.
0: Apart from being objective, what does getting the story right look like to you as an editor?
3: I guess if we're not just talking about tone, I would just mainly dive into the editorial side of things, which is sourcing and making sure that every statement we put out there, every allegation against Trinity or the Trinity student body, we have multiple sources corroborating a single fact. And we have given the people that these allegations are made against an opportunity to respond. Because that way I can confidently feel like we're putting our best foot forward in terms of the information we put out there.
0: The show today was made possible by Chris, our sound editor, Annie, our assistant sound editor, and Dina, our co-producer. Thanks to the Varsity and our copy team. Subscribe to this podcast and tune in next time to hear more about all the happenings at U of T. I'm Henry McGowan, have a good day.